If you found our methodology, podcast, and general view on sales performance intriguing, you may find this offer very interesting. And as you know, we don't do them often. Before I share what the offer is, here's three brief questions I'd like you to consider. Number one, do you want to take your prospecting to the next level without being that guy who struggles with solicitation confidence and boundaries? Two, do you want to know exactly how to build trust with people in a way that compels them to want to spend time with you? Three, do you want to build an outreach cadence and routine that will help you succeed in a hyper-changing business environment? If yes to any of these questions, join Lapa 180 in our new four-part webinar series that starts February 15th, 2023. Go to lapa180.com slash webinars to learn more about this special series. And I've seen very successful salespeople do this. Maybe you have as well, where people demonstrate their high intent by saying things like, listen, I don't want to sell you a manufacturing system or an assembly line that isn't going to work for you because that's going to be bad for me. It's going to be bad for my company. So I'm here to figure out, right, whether we can help you because only if we can help you do we both win. That was Kent Grayson, Associate Professor of Marketing at the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University, sharing why stating your intent is essential to creating trust. Ken has conducted decades of research on the topics of trust and authenticity in the marketplace. In this one-on-one interview, Kent and I discuss how today's selling strategies diminish the trust data for your prospects to decide on change. We start with the origins of trust in early human society, the role of risk tolerance, predictability, and vulnerability. You'll also learn what the three foundations of trust are and how you can use them in your conversations. There's a lot of surprises in this one, so let's jump in. Being the expert on trust, what is the role of trust and how would you define trust? The role of trust in sales and in marketing and in business is to help people to deal with the uncertainty and risk that naturally occurs in most exchange relationships. Without trust, we have to spend a lot of time becoming more and more confident in our exchange partners, in the people who we're buying from or the people that we're selling to. And that takes a lot of time, energy, money, resources. Trust saves me that time, energy, money, and resources allows me to move forward with confidence because I know or I anticipate, I make an estimate that because I trust you, Dan, that I'm willing to go forward without having to double check that you are where you say you are, without having to double check that you have the equipment that you say you're going to have. And because I trust you, I was able to just jump right in and have our conversation. It's the same in sales relationships and the same in exchange relationships. I came across this article and it was about this hypothesis that anthropologists had come up with. And it was all about like 50,000 years ago about the formations of trust and why did trust form? They narrowed it down to, I think number one was technology. And then number two was social advances And they described it like this. So the technology piece was, over time, technology started to advance. At first, they could use sign language to communicate on how to 
build something, whether it be a spear or start a fire or something, right? But as technology advanced, they had to go to writing on walls, as we know quite well, right? In caves and stuff. So they had to do pictures and stuff. But again, as it started to really advance, they had to come up with communication, conversation, words. And that's when they said trust really started to kick in there. But the big part that I remember reading from this article was it was all about the social norms. So if one tribe had a fresh kill, right, and food, but they didn't have fire and they didn't have shelter, another tribe over here might have fire and shelter but didn't have food. And so what would happen is they would approach each other. And I guess back then you had to be really keen on picking up body language, eye contacts, demeanors, because a lot of times you didn't know what the end result would be, harm or help. And harm often meant your tribe might get wiped out for the food by the other tribe. And so that's where they said this trust thing started to evolve, whereas we human beings are always looking to decide and figure out or forecast, is this situation is this interaction or environment going to harm me or help me? I've not heard that part about the technology, and I think it's very uh, interesting and probably true. You need to have ways of conveying that you're trustworthy, and you probably need ways of marking down to provide assurance. You, know, you gave me this jug of oil, and I gave you this money. And you can't come back to me and say, I didn't give you the money because we wrote it down here. <laughs> it's a way of ensuring trust. The other point that you mentioned, I have seen, and I think it does run through a lot of anthropological and sociological research, which has to do with specialization. You can think about the self-sufficient farmer, even here in the U.S. You go out west, your job was pretty much to grow your own food and keep your family safe and build your own barns. And every once in a while, you might want to do a little trading. But most of what you did was you were a renaissance person. You were the person who did the farming and the, and the livestock. But as society became more and more complex, and particularly as people started to move into the cities for employment, they became more specialized. And now they're in the position that you described with those tribes, where I have something that I can do that's good for society. And I get money for that. But the thing that I'm doing is only giving me money so that I can go out and get other stuff. And now I'm going to go to somebody who's good at you know, farming milk and someone who's good at farming chickens and someone who's good at growing oats. And because of that specialization, I now need to depend on others. And that's sort of like the genesis of trust. Along with that is a lack of social knowledge of others. You can think about a time when there's 10 farms across 20 acres. Everybody's got a couple of acres and I know who my neighbors are and I probably know a lot about their business because they're the only people I interact with. And so they have a vested interest in living up to their obligations because they know that if my farm's burning and they come and help me, that I'm going to go and help them when their farm's burning. Because we live right next to each other, and really our, our futures are tied together. You move into the cities when people are living right next to each other in apartments, and they don't really even know each other's business. Now we need something called trust, which is an anticipation that you're going to live up to your 
bargain, not because you have a vested interest, but maybe because you believe that trust is a good thing for our neighborhood or you believe that you want to be known as a trustworthy person. Yeah, as you were talking, it made me think about one of the key ingredients to trust that you have shared and you have done in your research, which is competency. To me, you were describing competency. Trust to psychologists and sociologists and anthropologists is really not very well understood by a global measure of do you trust? Because as many people who study trust say, trust you to do what? Trust, as you've rightly pointed out, has this one component, which is competence. Do I anticipate, I'm looking to the future, do I anticipate that this person, let's take a sales situation, has the competence to understand my business and to provide an expert evaluation of how their product or service can help my business? Do they have the competence? Do they have the skills? That's a really important element of trust. So yeah, when somebody comes to help me, my barn's on fire, I hope to heck they know enough about firefighting, maybe even more than I do, right? They have to have the competence. At the same time, before they even come, I'm hoping that even though it's the middle of the night, and even though I know they've got their family to worry about, I'm hoping when they see the fire across the field, they're going to sort of sacrifice their own interests, which are minor now compared to mine, and they're going to come running across, you know, in their carriage or whatever, and help me with my fire. That's what people sometimes call benevolence, or what you sometimes I know call high intent, right? It's this idea that it's not that I care so much about you that I'm willing to die for you. That's family. That's different than trust. That's something bigger than trust. That's love. That's, that's something big. But that I'm willing to sacrifice a little bit of my stuff so that you can get a better deal. And so that you don't feel screwed. That's the most important thing. So that when you walk away, you don't feel like you got the raw end of the stick. So like I could show up. You, let's say your, fire's, your, your barn's burning, Dan, and I come running across. I'm like, how can I help? And you're like, well, don't you know how to put out a fire? And I'm like, no, but I'm here to help. I'm showing you a ton of benevolence, a ton of, I think, what you would call high intent. I might not have the competence, but give me a payout, man. You're going to give me a lot of credit because I've shown myself to be trustworthy, not because of my competence, but because of my caring about you and your best interests. A lot of sales professionals get themselves caught up with, how do I go in and prove my value? to this decision maker, right? How do I go in and prove to them that we have the expertise, we should have a seat at the table? How do I get them to want to do business with me? But the challenge with all of that is it's no longer about what's in the best interest of that prospect or client. It's now become what's in the best interest for me and what serves me. And that is the benevolence point you're talking about, or what we call high intent. And that's where we see so much of trust break down so quickly in sales. And then sales professionals spend so much time trying to regain ground by offering additional services or offering price discounts, or they're left just chasing and chasing and chasing that prospect or client for a decision where the real problem was that the trust broke down. Even if that salesperson had the right solution, had the right expertise, from a prospect or client standpoint, 
they weren't willing to take what they perceived to be the risk because the trust was lost. I'd like to hear more from you on that because I think that's a big part of what a, a lot of our listeners face. Well, I've heard you talk about the role of trust and risk, and you, you heard me when I define trust. It's about mitigating risk and making things more efficient because when things are risky, we have to spend more time in our decision-making mode. You know, should I go left or should I go right? If I feel like things are really risky and I don't know whether to go left or right, it's going to take me a lot of time to figure it out. But if someone's standing at that fork in the road who I trust saying, hey, buddy, going right is a much better deal for you, that makes things a lot easier for me. And I can go right with some confidence. I remember when you and I were talking about this, Kent, you had some really interesting thoughts on what is risk impacted by. Maybe we can get into that a little bit. If someone's risk is at a four, four out of five, then the trust needs to be at a four. And what I like about that is like if the risk is at a one, you know, the trust doesn't have to be that high because the risk is low. You're in a foreign country, you see a restaurant that looks pretty okay. You know, you might not know about the, the hygiene rules in that country or, you know, you might not even know the brand of restaurant, but you're willing to take a chance. I mean, the worst that can happen is a little food poisoning, but even that's pretty low likelihood. So you don't have to, like, look up on four websites to see if it has the right reputation. You might just go in and get a sandwich because the risk is low. So when people talk about risk, they recognize that risk has two components. It's the size of loss how much can I lose? The bigger my potential loss, the more risky it's going to feel to me. If the worst thing I think has happened is I'm going to get a sandwich that doesn't taste good, you know, maybe that's not so bad. But if the worst thing that can happen is I might lose my life, like I want to go bungee jumping in this same country, I might be looking up the safety regulations a little bit more carefully to make sure that the organization is reputable. I think about that example where if someone has $100 and, they're, and they've found or they're given or they're rewarded $100, they feel great. But yet in that same example, if you flip it and you lose $100, human tendency is to feel two and three times worse about the loss of the 100 versus the gain of the 100. And then when I connect that back to prospects, right, once the prospect is now given the baton or the client to make a decision presentation's over, right? Everything's been delivered. Now it's up for that prospect or client to say a yes or a no. They leave the meeting. My gut is just because of human nature on this whole bias of loss aversion, right, which I'm sure feeds into risk, is that they're going to innately double down on the focus regarding what do we have to lose here? What could go wrong versus what can we gain? What could go right? 100%. Very well put. That's loss aversion. You're absolutely right. And you've described it really well. And it highlights just how risky making a change is for your prospect. If you're selling to somebody and you've got four white papers that prove to them that by going with your system, they're going to save X percent or they're going to gain Y percent, and let's say you're the best salesperson in the world and you're not giving them any BS about this. You're telling them the real facts that you know with 99% confidence that this is the savings they're going to get. And they still say no. You might look at that and say, that's crazy because why would somebody whose KPIs have to do with savings, <laughs> why would they not switch? And the answer you've pointed to right there is loss aversion. 
because their perception of what they could lose is higher than what you think they could gain. They're looking at what they have, the devil you know, and that's weighing really heavily in their mind. The inertia of that is weighing really heavily in their mind. So that's size of loss. But another element of risk is likelihood of loss. So people who do high-risk you know, bungee jumping and jumping out of airplanes and stuff like that, they know they can lose their life, but they also have a way of calculating what is the likelihood of that. And they know the likelihood is really small, especially in countries where safety regulations are pretty stringent. So they're willing to do it because, you know, the likelihood of loss is not looming very large. Those of us like me who would never do that, it's the size of loss I'm thinking about. And you can see already People can think about size of loss and likelihood of loss for the same thing in different ways. And you've pointed to that with loss aversion. If I have something, I'm going to not want to give it up. I guarantee you if I'm sitting on the top of some bridge getting ready to jump, I've got nothing but <laughs> loss aversion in my head. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Now, here's, I think, the most interesting thing about risk. And it has to do with a distinction that academics make between risk and uncertainty. So uncertainty is different from risk in the sense that uncertainty means I can't calculate either the size of the loss with confidence or the likelihood of loss with confidence, or maybe both. And here's where expert sales really plays a role and where trust really comes in. Because I'm not just depending on my salesperson and their team and their company to come in and address my problem or make things more efficient or make my products better for my customers. But I'm also trusting them to have a better sense of my business so that they know better than I do the size of the loss and the likelihood of the loss. It's funny, right? We can tell another human being to go right. What we have found is more often than not, if the sales professional is the one telling, more likely the prospect or the client chooses left. In this case, you could say right would be make a change, left would be say status quo. Yeah. And as you were talking, I kept thinking, what if a sales professional just asked the prospect of the client, hey, let's define your risk here together. Let's define very objectively what you perceive your gain to be and at what cost you perceive that to happen? What if there was a way to have that conversation through questions where the professional, sales professional is sitting back and shepherding that discussion and allowing the prospect and the client to come up with the answers? So let's say we have somebody who's been listening to your podcast for a long time, long enough that they can do high intense selling really well. They walk into the room with their team and with the prospects team, and they are completely objective. What they want to do is find out, is this relationship the right relationship? Will it work? Do I have the products and services to help this client? And is this client in a position to benefit from my products and services? That's the goal, right? Well, I've got to get this client to open up because... You can be as high intent as you want. That client has a lot of hesitation in sharing the risk, right? So I could walk in and say, okay, listen, I don't care about the sale. I'm independently wealthy. I could get this sale or not. 
tell me, dear prospect, how risky is going with me? Tell me what your deepest problems are with your business. Tell me what your KPIs are. Tell me how you haven't met your KPIs in the last six months. Each one of those questions is a very personal question, really, for people professionally personal. You know what I mean? Like this is the person's deepest, darkest professional secrets. And they're going to be skeptical of sharing, even with a high intent salesperson, sort of what those problems are. Academics call this information asymmetry. It's the biggest bugaboo in exchange relationships is that I know more about my needs and interests and wants and capabilities than you do. You know more about your stuff than I do, right? And the problem is if you share with me some of that stuff and you don't trust me, you fear that I can use that to my advantage. So you say, okay, I've got this manufacturing facility. It's way out of date. I'm not getting enough investment from my CEO to completely revamp it. I'm getting higher and higher output expectations, and I need to do something in the next six months that's going to save this factory. And then maybe if I can limp it along for six months, uh, maybe I can, I can get the CEO to invest. But by telling you that, you might use that to your advantage, right? And the salesperson could pretend that they could fix it for six months or they could say, now I've given the salesperson sort of a roadmap to say the right things, right? To convince me to buy when they don't have the competence or they don't have the benevolence. And so it's tricky. How do you elicit from the prospect the information? You have to build trust. It's a real catch-22, Is there a difference in terms of trust? Is it benevolence lasts longer? Does competence last longer? Which one is more powerful? Which one has the better opportunity to establish trust? The answer might be situational. I think it is situational. I think someone shows up to help you with a fire, to put out a fire, you're going to care a lot more about competence than benevolence, right? Because you need to put the fire out right then and there, and you need somebody who really knows how to do it for sure. We would call that the two out of 10. So we do our research, right? If you show up to talk to a prospect, how many of those prospects have already decided they have a fire and they need that fire put out? And the answer we always get is one or two. So to your point, when you're in front of one of those prospects who's got a fire, competence is going to be key. But then you got to think about, well, what about the other eight, though, that you've worked hard to get in front of and they don't have a fire, So we've mentioned two dimensions of trust, competence and benevolence. There's a third dimension, which is really quite similar to benevolence, but it's honesty or integrity. Sometimes people call it, you tell the truth and keep your promises. So all three of those are really necessary to build a truly trusting relationship. If you have competence and benevolence without honesty, it's not going to be as strong as if you have honesty. If you have honesty and benevolence without competence, it's not going to be as strong as with competence. Okay, so that's important. When we're building trusting relationships, we can't fall short on honesty. And that doesn't mean, you know, you're not going to make mistakes. If you say you're going to deliver on time and you don't deliver on time, you just own up to it. Some companies and some salespeople are defensive or they blame someone else or they don't take responsibility. And that makes trust take a hit on the honesty dimension. Okay, so we got honesty, benevolence, and competence. Now, they both require different activities on the salesperson's side to build. And if you fall short on them, they both will reduce trust, okay? But for competence, if you fall short on competence, research shows 
that the loss in trust is modest. So let's say you and I have been working together. I've shown myself to be a competent salesperson. I, I deliver on time. I understand your problems. I make good recommendations. And you want an upgrade to the software program that you've bought from me. And I recommend you have three options for the upgrade. I recommend one and it doesn't work out. And when we, after it's been deployed for a couple of months, we say, you know what? You probably should have had the other one. And I take responsibility for it. I say, you're right. I, I made the wrong judgment. That's my competence. I'm taking a hit on my competence. But if you've already seen me to be competent before, your trust in me is only going to go down a small amount. I'm going to have to prove myself and build it back up again, but it goes down by a small amount. But when it comes to benevolence and honesty, falling short on benevolence and honesty can really damage trust by many points, not by a fraction of a point, as is the case with competence, but by many points, just with one reveal that I am not benevolent or I am not competent. If I've sold you on an upgrade and it doesn't work out, and you find out the reason I sold you on the upgrade is because I get a higher commission on that, or I was trying to meet my sales quota for that, you all of a sudden know you didn't recommend it because you thought it was the right thing, but you, you just didn't understand my business well enough. You recommended it for you. You were not benevolent and you were not honest. When that happens, trust goes down and it's very hard to build back up from there. The trust that you generate or you have the potential to generate, when you first sit down in that very first conversation with a prospect or client, it's got to be so different, though, than the trust needed, right? For that prospect or client somewhere down the road after multiple interactions with you to decide, yes, I'm going to make a change and I'm going to face all that unpredictability and uncertainty and I'm going to choose you. That is a whole different level of trust than that very first meeting. And that gets to this idea of, you know, size of loss and likelihood of loss, right? So what's the risk of me meeting with you for a half hour or for an hour, setting that up in my calendar? Now, I'm a busy person, so the size of loss is, you know, seems like a lot because I'm a busy person, but it's not as much as changing suppliers or vendors. It's not as much as risking, you know, my operations. And this is why, you know, smart salespeople and smart companies find ways that clients can incrementally give a company a try. You know, I don't have to be your preferred vendor on day one. I don't have to take over all your operations. Do you have a business unit uh, where we can try out our operations or our new system or our new software? Let's give it a try. And that helps lower the size of loss so that maybe if trust is only at uh, halfway to where it needs to go for full decision making, that client will be willing to make the move from where they are to where they want to be in that one business unit. When I go into that first meeting, I don't have a lot of trust, but the simple equation I might want to follow would be, let me show my high intent through my questions or my benevolence, all right, that I am focused on the narrative of the prospect. Two would be when and if appropriate, I can share some capabilities. Just don't go down the rabbit hole. Don't start credentializing, but sprinkle them in, share them in when needed, right? And as I'm building that trust, I need to realize that it's going to be a different level of trust, though, at some point for this person to make a change, to decide on change. The more time that they spend with me as a sales professional, 
the more I can encourage them to invest in the questions because the questions serve them, not me. My gut is there might be a little bias that's a positive bias that could happen where this prospect feels like through the questions, through the dialogue, it is about them. They've invested energy effort. They've taken some risks in answering some of my questions. I didn't use the questions against them. My gut is that, right, there could be some attachment built over time that would be positive or what I would say is a positive bias in this process to help this prospect make a decision. If I'm a prospect and this is the fourth time I've met with a salesperson, I am well aware that this salesperson is starting to think like, how many times do I have to meet with this fellow before we move to the next phase? No matter how high intent the salesperson is, I'm a business person as well. I know that this person is not doing it just because they like me and just because they want to help my business, but they're hoping to get a sale. And I'm aware that they have dedicated a certain amount of time. So I think one reason why that what you call a bias, I think it's a good word to use, sets in is because the person starts to feel a little bit of an obligation, right? Because you've given me, Dan, so much time and so much attention. You've made a couple of trips across country to see me and my team, and we've met on Zoom three or four times as well. I'm starting to feel like reciprocity is going to kick in, and I have to, I either have to make a decision or I have to cut bait, all right? So there's that. One way to build trust is to demonstrate that you have trust in the other person. We're getting into a little bit of ethically muddy waters here because research on trust sort of points out what builds trust. But what that becomes is a recipe for unethical people to build trust using the same cues and pretending, right? So there's a, a famous article by a philosopher called The Cunning of Trust, which is, if I demonstrate trust in you, I know that psychologically and sociologically, you're going to feel like, oh, well, you know, you're going to feel like the reciprocity kicks in and you're going to trust me as well. I think, though, that a high intent, high ethics salesperson who's visited with somebody four or five times without any financial remuneration for that <laughs> is demonstrating trust. They're demonstrating, listen, I know you might say no, but the reason I'm here on visit four is because I think you are earnestly and honestly considering me as a possible supplier or vendor or partner. And I think in demonstrating that trust, the, the bias that the psychologists and philosophers and sociologists have talked about also starts to kick in. I say, wow, you know, you spent a lot of time with me. I'm, I trust you as well now. And that that might help to lead to better questions and better conversations and therefore a better decision about whether the relationship is the right relationship. I've heard that the reciprocity piece on vulnerability. So I've heard that there's a strong connection to trust when one person shows a degree of vulnerability, the reciprocity or obligation of the other person, almost like they feel like they need to show some vulnerability too. And so that the act of showing the vulnerability actually builds the trust. It's not the trust before the vulnerability. The way that you describe vulnerability is really the flip side of trust. So if I share with you something personal 
or in the sales situation, I share with you, you know, I'm really up against the wall with this manufacturing plant. I don't know where to turn, but if I cannot make this work, I think my time at this company is coming to an end. I'm really at the end of my rope. Now, I've just shown myself to be vulnerable, absolutely, but I've also shown myself to be sufficiently trusting in you that you're not going to, A, use it against me, B, make fun of me, C, tell others about my problem. And so in that particular situation, I see it as being quite similar to if I show that I trust you by being vulnerable, then you will, first of all, treat that trust with the care that I hope you'll give it, but also you might start to trust me more as well. And you might say, you know, I, I also have had a problem like that or, you know, listen, I know exactly how you feel sort of thing. And then you're, you're kind of leaning in on that and showing yourself to be trustworthy. If you were in front of a thousand sales professionals, what would be some of the key things that you would tell them that they would want to be aware of and try to do to build trust? If we recognize that falling short on benevolence and honesty can really undermine trust, then we understand why some of the best salespeople are so overly focused on things like being on time, making sure that things are delivered in the way that they were promised, making sure that even if you have the opportunity to cut corners, the cost of being discovered, having cut corners, having padded an invoice or used a slightly less reputable supplier when you put these uh, products together, all of that, I've seen it naturally happens. Even the best of us sometimes are tempted. Who's going to notice? It might not really matter. By cutting those corners or by not being truthful all the time, the price is super high. And uh, this thing that economists call incentive alignment. Incentive alignment means that I believe that your incentives are the same as mine. And I told you information asymmetry is a big problem in marketplaces because I don't know what you know and you don't know what I know. But information asymmetry is made even worse by incentive misalignment, which is almost always the case. Our incentives are never going to be totally aligned. And my biggest concern is not only that I don't know what, what your intent is, but I also think there's a high possibility that your intent is against mine, that you want to get more for yourself than you want for me. So one way to demonstrate high intent is to demonstrate our incentives are aligned. And I've seen very successful salespeople do this. Maybe you have as well, where people demonstrate their high intent by saying things like, listen, I don't want to sell you a manufacturing system or an assembly line that isn't going to work for you because that's going to be bad for me. It's going to be bad for my company. Like that would be the worst thing in the world. Then you're going to be mad at us. You're going to take up a lot of time. And also you're going to say bad things about us. I don't want to work with somebody where they're going to end up saying bad stuff about us because we couldn't do the job. So I'm here to figure out, right, whether we can help you because only if we can help you, do we both win. That's win-win incentive alignment. Probably seven, eight years ago, Kent, it took maybe seven or eight outreaches to connect with a new buyer or new decision maker or prospect, right? It takes upwards of 16 outreaches to connect potentially with a new buyer or prospect. Is there any difference between or any different rules, parameters regarding building trust 
via email, building trust via voicemail or live conversation. Are there any significant differences? I'm sure there are. And it's not an area of expertise for me. There are people in communication studies who focus a lot on body language. Don't say this in an email. Do say that. But for me, at the end of the day, what doesn't change between email or video conferencing or in person is we're always trying to work on building the other person's belief that we're benevolent, other person's belief that we're honest, and other person's belief that we're competent. And I'm sure there are tricks, opener, email, subject headers that are going to build competence or benevolence. But I think if you have those ideas, you can trust your instincts and your experience to sort of focus on building those things. And choosing the right or the wrong word in your emails is not going to be as important as delivering on those three dimensions. So if I'm in sales and I have a choice on my email... Remember, this person doesn't know me. Between benevolence and competence, would I want to lead with one or the other? The classic opener is the salesperson who knows the prospect's problem clearly enough to say, I have the solution. So I've been using this hypothetical example of somebody who has an aging manufacturing plant that needs uh, some rubber bands and masking tape because they're not going to be able to, you know, replace all the equipment. And so if I get an email one day that says, we can improve your aging manufacturing plant at low cost, (laughs) that shows they're going to solve my problem. And is it benevolence? Is it competence? It's like they know me well enough that they're going to solve my problem. Then, of course, you know, I'm going to click. If all they're going to do is build benevolence and say, you know, don't worry, we won't lie to you and we care about you, that's not going to get me to click. That was Kent Grayson. It was very exciting to spend time with Kent. He brought a lot of knowledge, clarity, and depth to the set of social behaviors we all call trust. I find his research and his commentary around vulnerability and risk, predictability, and reciprocity very enlightening. He's given all of us a fantastic opportunity to reflect on our own outreach and our own conversation strategies. Think about it. Does your current outreach and conversation strategy build or diminish trust? Kent's work around trust is tied closely with Lapin 180's upcoming four-part webinar series, where we'll be discussing how to overcome self-imposed barriers and fears regarding outreach, how to build trust through outreach, how to build trust through your conversations and questions, and then how to help your prospect shed decision-making biases. If interested in learning more, go to lapin180.com slash webinars. The four-part series starts February 15th, 2023. Hope to see you there. Thanks for listening to Breaking Sales. If you want to get engaged with us outside of the podcast, be sure to go to our website, lapin180.com. Go to contact us. You can also engage with us on LinkedIn, at Dan Lappin or Lappin 180.